Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. My Ideas Roadshow conversation with Edie Witter was one of the first ones that I did, and unfortunately, it shows. Not only is the audio lousy, we stupidly opted to shoot outdoors in a vain effort to capture the Floridian feel of our surroundings, but I constantly interrupted her in a misguided effort to provide a conversational atmosphere. But while returning to this footage to make this reformatted podcast was in many ways a painful exercise for me, my respect for Edie and her wonderful work remains undimmed. A seagoing marine biologist, pioneering educator, and passionate environmentalist, It's hard to imagine a better scientific role model or more deserving recipient of a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant, the monies from which she used to establish the Ocean Research and Conservation Association, which she leads, than Edie. Her captivating memoir, Below the Edge of Darkness, was published in July 2021. Do yourself a favor and read it. So bioluminescence, how did it begin for you? How did you get interested in that? And uh, tell me about that. Actually, when I started my Ph.D. work, uh, I was offered this opportunity to work on a bioluminescent dinoflagellate. And it was by a woman named Beezy Sweeney, who uh, was fairly famous in her own right in uh, the field of phycology, algae study, kind of. Uh, And so my major professor was Jim Case, but he and Beezy Sweeney had gotten together and thought up this project of making electrophysiological recordings of bioluminescence from a dinoflagellate that she had in culture. So I had this long conversation with BZ Sweeney about bioluminescence where I was sitting there trying to nod and look intelligent (laughs) and thinking, I don't really know what bioluminescence is. So I rushed home that night and pulled the Encyclopedia Americana off the shelf because this was the old days (laughs) and uh, looked up bioluminescence. And the entry was written by Beatrice M. Sweeney. Wow, so you were in the right place. I was in the right place. (laughs) And Jim Case was uh, quite famous in bioluminescence research with fireflies. So yes, I was was in good company. The bioluminescence itself was not actually the focus of the research. It was a convenient effector system to record from. And so it was kind of gradual that I got more and more interested in this ability of creatures to make light. And then... um, Jim was brilliant at writing proposals, and he wrote a proposal and got uh, funding from DOD for a optical... This is Department of Defense for all the non-Americans. Yes, uh, Department of Defense for an optical multi-channel analyzer, which is a fancy way of saying spectrometer. But it was super, super sensitive, so it could measure bioluminescence spectra, the color of the light. And uh, he got the equipment, and then it was just sitting on a bench in the lab. And I've always been kind of a gadget freak, and I couldn't quite leave it alone. So I just kept fiddling with it until I kind of became the lab expert on it. And he said, well, now that you know how to make this thing work, he said, now, you know, we need to start sending you to sea to measure all these animals in the ocean that make light and that nobody's ever been able to measure before. And suddenly, I was a seagoing marine biologist, which is what I always wanted to be, but never thought 
anybody actually gets to be. And I, I loved it. So this was your entry into being a seagoing marine biologist? Sort of. I mean, even at that stage, I didn't really think you could make a career out of this. Right. And I actually had a postdoc lined up in Madison, Wisconsin with the leading membrane biophysicist of the day. Uh, I, I mean, it was a dream postdoc for me. And then I went out on this expedition where uh, there were some scientists testing this diving suit called a WASP that was actually developed for use by the offshore oil industry for diving on oil rigs down to depths of 2,000 feet. And they were testing it as a tool for exploration. So what did it look like? What did it this, what did it looks like this Michelin man. It's got Michelin man arms, but it doesn't have legs. It's got kind of a pod. And okay. then it's got thrusters that fly it around. Oh, and cool. it, it's called the wasp because somebody thought it looked like the insect. It's got a yellow body and kind of a big bulbous head. Right. And I would get on the headset and talk to them because there's a cable down to them. Right. And I'd talk to whoever was in the suit and I'd say, would you turn out the lights and tell me what you'd see? Because I knew they'd see bioluminescence. Right. It's been known for a very long time. And so they'd turn out the lights and then all I'd get is things like, oh, wow, that's awesome. <laughs> and I'd say, could you be more specific? <laughs> And really, they couldn't. You know, it was very, very frustrating. And so the chief scientist on the mission, Dr. Bruce Robeson, kind of took pity on me. And he said, well, you know, if you want to stay around for another year, we could probably get you trained up as a pilot, and you could go down and see for yourself. So on the basis of that promise, I turned down right, the, the dream postdoc, right. and I lifted weights for a year to be able to use these stupid Michelin Man arms on this suit. And I made my first dive in the Santa Barbara Channel, went down to a depth of 880 feet, and it was an evening dive, turned out the lights, and all I could think was, awesome. oh, wow, <laughs> this is just so incredibly cool. But I also knew enough at that point, I'd been studying it long enough to know how much energy was involved, yeah. and I felt like, this is crazy amount of energy. This has got to be one of the most important processes in the ocean. Why aren't more people studying it? And I've been utterly hooked ever since, but fortunately for me, um, I was actually very well funded, as it turned out, because the Office of Naval Research had a very strong interest in bioluminescence because of its ability to reveal large cigar-shaped objects moving through the ocean at night. Aha, uh -huh. so there's a military uh, There was a military, military applic use. application, and so I ended up being involved in, with Jim Case in developing um, what is now the Navy Standard for um, measuring bioluminescence in the world's oceans. I called the patent on it. And uh, it was kind of cool because a lot of the development of that instrument took advantage of my PhD studying the electrophysiology of that dinoflagellate, believe it or not, because it under, I understood the excitation mechanisms right. and what it was going to take to be able to control the excitation in an instrument that could actually give us a, a meaningful measure of the light output. Because what the Navy wanted was a predictive capability for bioluminescence. They wanted to have an instrument they could go around and measure in the world's oceans and over time be able to say, okay, if you're working in this part of the ocean at this time of year, you have a high probability of there being bioluminescence or a low probability of there being right. bioluminescence. So when you, when you could go in, presumably, in such a way that it, you, would, you would create, you would, you would minimize the amount of bioluminescence uh, so that other people could find out what you were doing. Or if they were looking for if Soviet were looking for signals, right. submarines, Sorry. then they might be looking for bright spots. Right. And then uh, when the um, Soviet threat went away, my funding went away with a pop. But then it came back because during Desert Storm, 
um, one of the SEAL teams actually had to change its insertion point because of bioluminescence, because it turns out SEALs don't like to light up like Roman candles when they're coming under darkness. Right. And so it kind of all spun up again, but now it shifted from an interest in bioluminescence in the open ocean environment to bioluminescence in the coastal ocean environment. And oddly enough, that's kind of where I got into the conservation aspect of things because it coincided with the um, uh, reports that came out in 2003, the Pew Ocean Commission, and 2004, the U.S. Commission on Ocean Policy Report, which talked about the really desperate state of the ocean, and it was a scientific consensus unlike any I'd ever seen before. And a big emphasis on both those reports was the need for better monitoring. Well, when I was looking at the Navy's problem of how do we develop a predictive model for the coastal zone environment, I did a little back-of-the-envelope calculation to figure out how much money it would take to set up this area right here, the Indian River Lagoon, to be able to measure bioluminescence and develop that predictive capability. And I was just floored at the cost. I mean, it was astronomical. And even by Navy standards, it was out of the question. Right. And so I started to realize... There's not even any work being caught here. No, there's so. no more. I mean, it, it, was, it was crazy that, right. that they, they wouldn't have any way to monitor the most basic aspects of our environmental health. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe that's something I can actually help with. Because I've spent a lot of my career working with engineers to develop solutions to problems of questions I wanted to answer in the deep ocean, maybe I could do the same thing in the coastal zone environment and address some of these issues and develop new technologies that would make it easier and less expensive to do that kind of monitoring. I want to get back to that, uh, but I want to push a little bit more with bioluminescence and, and, and what it is. You threw a lot of uh, words at at the beginning, but for example, dinoflagellates. So yes. I have no idea what a dinoflagellate at least I know a little bit now because I've done a little bit of reading on bioluminescence, but I'm sure most people don't know what a dinoflagellate is. So dinoflagellates are algae. They're plankton. And so if you've ever gone out on the ocean at night and turned out the lights, you might have seen luminescence in your wake, although unfortunately where most people see it for the first time is actually on the, in the head, which is the toilet for landlubbers, <laughs> because toilets on ships are flushed with unfiltered seawater that often have bioluminescent plankton in it. Oh, that might be a bit alarming if that's it, the first thing. It can be very disturbing if you stagger into the head late at night and you're so toilet-hugging sick that you don't turn on a light. Yes. Um, so uh, dinoflagellates are a very common source of bioluminescence, especially in the coastal zone environment. Um, but as you move offshore, there's more and more and more animals that make light. And if you went and dragged a net out in the open ocean environment virtually anywhere in the world, from a thousand meters to the surface, most of the animals you bring up in that net make light. Most of the fish, the squid, the shrimp, the jellyfish make light. And in some places it's 80 percent of the animals. That, that's light. just fascinating. I mean, for, for me, I, I was vaguely aware of the idea and I knew about some plankton and so forth that, that did this, but I had no idea that so much of marine life in the open ocean actually is, is bioluminescent. And I'm sure most people don't either. I mean, that's, that's just a but that's, that's phenomenal. So why? So why, why, why are these things bioluminescent? I mean, what, what, first of all, what is bioluminescence? And how does it differ from other things that are glowing? Because there are other glowing properties that you see right. in nature sometimes. So how is, that, how is that different? And then why do, what are they, I mean, it's pretty and all, but what, what's the point of it all? Well, most people, if they know bioluminescence at all, it's fireflies. Right. And there's a few other land animals that they make light, but 
in general, it's pretty rare on land, and I think that's why people think the same thing's true in the ocean. It isn't, but that, that's the thinking. Right. So um, as a physicist, you can appreciate all light in the universe comes from the same basic phenomenon. Electron gets excited to a higher energy level. It drops back down to a lower energy level, gives up its energy as a packet of energy called a photon. The only difference between different types of light is how the electrons get excited in the first place. So thermal excitation, that's incandescence. Uh, candle flame, sunlight, this, you know, the bright lights around right. us, they're, they're producing heat and light. Right. But there's other ways you can get electrons excited, and one of them is with a chemical reaction, and a very efficient chemical reaction, and that's called chemiluminescence. And bioluminescence is just one form of chemiluminescence where the animals are producing the chemicals that make the light. And so this is an internal process uh, caused by some chemical reaction. Correct. Um, and from an evolutionary perspective, again, wow, all these, all these creatures are doing this. Um, and presumably they're, they're doing it, or at least there's some variety. There. Some are doing it for one reason, some are doing it for another reason. So what, what, are, what so, are some of the effects? In, so the, the three reasons? broad categories that it generally falls into is finding food, attracting mates, and defending against predators. And what, in terms of why there's so much bioluminescence in the ocean, presumably as the ocean filled up with ever swifter and nastier predators, prey needed to be able to escape, escape those predators, usually by hiding. But there's no hiding places in the open ocean. The only hiding place is to go down deeper where it's darker. So these are animals that had already evolved eyes. And now the evolutionary pressure is to develop more sensitive eyes because they're living down deeper and to enhance their visual signaling capabilities. So you can imagine an animal that already had developed say, spots on the opercula for a fish to attract a mate. And now it's, it's living deeper to escape its predators. Now it's got to make those spots visible. more visible. Sure. And so there's the evolutionary pressure for it. And so you've got animals that have developed uh, built-in flashlights to help them see in the dark. Oh, that's cool. Glowing lures to help attract food to them. And some of them are chin barbels, you know, not, not sometimes it's arched in front. Um, different colors of light, which is very interesting. Most bioluminescence is blue because that's the color that travels furthest through seawater. Right. And so animals have evolved the wavelength that's going to travel the furthest. And most of them can only see blue light as a consequence. But for example, there's a deep sea fish that I love that produces far red light from a big red light organ under each eye. And it ha has um, visual pigments that allows it to see red light. So it uses it like a sniper scope. So it can sneak up on animals that are blind to the so red these light. These are shorter, shorter distances, presumably, yes. that they can yes. see. Yes, right. And it can sneak, so, so it's, it's got this extra visual capacity that other animals don't right. have in the, in the... Right. So it's like a Navy SEAL with these night goggle visions. Exactly. <laughs> and, and the colors range all the way from um, ultraviolet to far red. Right. Most of it is, I said, is blue. Right. If you go into the coastal zone, it it's, tends to be greener because the light is scattered more by particles in the water, and so green actually travels further. And so they've evolved that color to predominate in the coastal zone environment. Because that, that answers a question I was going to ask. Because you had mentioned with your work before, bioluminescence in the, in the open ocean and then in the coastal areas, and, and I wanted to ask you what the difference was between them. So, there, so. There's differences in color, uh, but there's a huge difference in um, species diversity. So as you go offshore, it, you know, as many as 80% of the species that you bring up could be bioluminescent. I mean, there's a huge number of species that's different in different places. Right. But in the coastal zone environment, it's generally only about 
of the species that are bioluminescent. And that's because in this local uh, environment, there's plenty of hiding places. So the evolutionary pressure has not, they didn't need to. You can get very, very large numbers of um, a few of these animals. Right, so the, you ones can, that needed, the ones that did it, there are lots of them. Yeah. But, but the, the variety isn't there. Right, right. So you mentioned before that you were a bit of a gadget person. It seems like you're underplaying that. It seems like you're actually a lot of a gadget person. And one of the things you developed was, uh, was this IMC device to actually study that. So when I read about that, I, I, uh, I was amazed, I, I think, by, by, for two reasons. So I'd like you to talk about it, but let me just give you my, my summary of my amazement. So the first is that there was a sense of, here's a mechanism that, that we can actually build to, uh, to, to, to look at things in real time using bioluminescence. That was one sense of uh, amazement that I had. And the other was um, the implication that there's a lot less uh, that we know than I had thought about what species exist and what's actually out there, and that bioluminescence is actually a really important tool that we can use to actually chart the life forms that are, that are in the ocean. Um, and naively, I had thought, and I, I have no expertise in this at all, but naively I had thought, well, we kind of have some sense of what's out there in the ocean. But it turns out that's, that's really not the case. No, actually, uh, the statistic is that we've only explored about 5% of the ocean, and wow, the... the the sound bite that you hear most often is that uh, we have better maps of the backside of the moon than we do of the bottom of the ocean. And so there's that, but then there's the way we have explored the ocean, which is the primary way we know what lives in the ocean is we either we go drag nets behind ships, and I defy you to name any other branch of science that still depends on hundreds of year old technology. He's thinking about it. And, and um, or we go down with these very bright, noisy platforms called submersibles or remote-operated vehicles. And I've spent, I've made hundreds of dives in submersibles, and as I've sat there with these lights shining out into the darkness, I've always wondered, you know, what is there just beyond the range of my lights that can see me, but I can't see it? I mean, any animal with any sense is, not gonna, <laughs> is just going to get the heck out. And so I've had this feeling for a long time, and I wanted to explore unobtrusively. Right. And so... You know, I got this idea actually from that deep sea fish I mentioned that uses the red light. It, it can be done. It's harder, but it can be done. Sure. And so I just wanted to use, you can't use infrared light the way they do on land because it's just absorbed too quickly, but use far red light and a super sensitive camera. And then I wanted to be able to uh, bring in more than just scavengers, which you, you know, if you put dead fall down, you're going to bring in the scavengers, but right. I wanted to bring in active predators. Right. And so I was going to use bioluminescence, so I developed what we call an electronic jellyfish that imitates certain bioluminescent displays that I had reason to believe would be attractive to large predators. Bioluminescence gets used a lot for defense in a lot of different ways. So, for example, just the way a squid or an octopus will release an ink cloud in the face of a predator, there's a lot of animals that can release their bioluminescent chemicals into the face of the predator, temporarily blinding it while they swim away into the darkness. Um, there's a lot of animals that use it for camouflage. So hiding in that dim downwelling light, um, they've got to worry about their silhouette. And so they produce luminescence from their bellies that exactly matches the color and the intensity of the downwelling sunlight. And it's so perfect that if a cloud goes over the sun and dims the sunlight, they dim their belly lights. And they truly, truly disappear. And, they you can know, do it with they, at the variation of sunlight. They've they got a feedback. They've got feedback. And, and, um, you know, people see these and they wonder because, you know, sometimes there are individual spots on the belly of yeah. the animal, 
but if you've ever opened your eyes under your water, you know how things blur. When they blur together perfectly, and it, they just act. <laughs> well, you're, you're missing a trick. <laughs> so it's fish that do this. It's right. uh, shark. There's um, sharks that can do it. There's um, uh, jelly. I mean, um, um, shrimp and krill and um, all this variety. Just squid do it spectacularly. Right. Um, in fact, there's some squid that can change the color of their luminescence depending on whether they're trying to camouflage themselves against sunlight down deep during the day or against moonlight up near the surface at night. No. Yes, that's a really clever trick because that's under temperature control. So that if they're down deep during the day, it's cold, yeah. and when they come up into surface waters at night, it's warm. So you can, you can make them do this in the lab by just changing the temperature. And they turn on different light organs, and actually it's even more complicated than that because some of these light organs have um, interference filters in front of them to change the color a little bit, and they can change the spacing on the filter in order to broaden the spectrum. On, on it's, it's So for anyone who doesn't believe in evolution, <laughs> you either have just the most remarkably sophisticated, intelligent marine life forms that are just Einsteinian, or, or, uh, or you're wrong. Well, <laughs> actually, bioluminescence is a marvelous way to teach about evolution. For example, we discovered uh, a deep-sea octopus that ended up on the cover of Nature because it was evolution caught in the act. And what we discovered was it had um, suckers yeah. that were no longer suckers. They were um, suckers turning into light organs. Wow. So it, that's, that's a, a marvelous example. Another uh, very nice example is uh, bioluminescent bacteria, and that's within the last 10 years, this discovery. Um, th this is kind of amazing because when I was starting out in this field, every bioluminescence group you ever got together would end up in an argument about how the heck bioluminescence in bacteria could have ever evolved because the problem is that the light output from a single bacterium producing light can't be seen by any known eye. So how could it have been selected for in the first place? Right. Right. And in fact, um, it, yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an excellent question and in fact, Bacteria um, or light output is so energetically costly that it's detrimental to the bacteria to produce this. Right. And you can demonstrate that if you take a culture of um, uh, bacteria, bioluminescent bacteria, and a, and a dark strain of the same species and put them together, the dark strain will overrun the culture because the energy because required. Energy. Yeah. Okay. But there was these very clever Polish scientists that did an experiment where um, they irradiated the dish with ultraviolet light. And now the bioluminescent bacteria overran the culture. And the reason is that there is an enzyme called photolyase that repairs broken DNA, but it requires light of exactly the wavelength uh, that the bioluminescent bacteria produce. And so the original adaptation for light output in the bacteria was DNA repair. And suddenly it all makes sense. It's beautiful. That's cool. It's very cool. But I've taken you far off track. Yes, it's, sorry. It's a fan no, 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 there's no reason to apologize. But you were giving examples of different uses and different types of, of bioluminescent. And then there was, uh, because we're going to your eye in the sea uh, aspect and how um, this one particular uh, I'm going to say fish, but I know when I say fish. Jelly no, it was actually jellyfish. So. Um, one of the ways that animals use bioluminescence for defense is something called a bioluminescent burglar alarm. 
And the concept is that if you are caught, caught in the clutches of a predator and have no apparent hope for escape, one thing you can do is attract a lot of attention to you in hopes of attracting something larger that will attack whatever is attacking you right. and therefore afford you an opportunity for escape. And this right. is actually a pretty common trick. This is the same reason that birds and monkeys have fear screens. Right. Yes, that the screens, once they're caught, is to attract something bigger. It wants to get the yeah. thing that they're, that's Yeah, attacking and them. so maybe the lion will come in and attack the hyena that has the monkey in its huh. jaws and, and thereby, you know, the monkey gets away. Um, I mean, the... Uh, anyway, the, the uh, thing which is under attack. Is they, right. but, yes, right. um, so there's a lot of animals that are used bioluminescence for a lot of different reasons, but they, they will use every light organ they've got to try to attract attention right. if they're caught. And so there's a common deep sea jellyfish um, called a tola, beautiful thing, um, and it produces the most spectacular burglar alarm where the light just pinwheels around the. Um, the jellyfish for an extended period of time and it's very very bright I have to ask you is, is the reason it's a beautiful jellyfish because it has this beautiful pinwheeling effect or is it beautiful in other ways it's, I, I it's beautiful seen in the light and it's beautiful seen in the dark okay. it's 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 a spectacular jellyfish so it this jellyfish produces this ma magnificent pinwheel burglar alarm display and right. so we created a um, imitation of that which is just 16 blue lights that can be programmed to imitate exactly that but uh, when I did this originally, I was trying to get it funded, obviously, and uh, there's this problem in science that they won't give you money for something unless you tell them what you're going to discover. And well, this is a wonderful quote by Einstein that, that doubtless you know. I mean, there are lots of quotes by Einstein, and most of them are apocryphal. But <laughs> one I'm pretty sure he said was, if we knew what we were doing, uh, we wouldn't call it research. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> but National Science Foundation has to be more conservative with their funds than that. So I couldn't, I couldn't get it funded. And um, so what I did was I went to the Harvey Mudd Engineering Clinic, and I got them to do it as an undergraduate student project, where oh, I gave them all of the bits and pieces, and they kind of put something together that sort of worked on the bench. And then I went to the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, and I got enough funds for, to put the whole thing in a deep-sea housing and uh, create a frame with a light. And uh, we kludged together the electronic jellyfish. We actually cast it in epoxy, um, and you can you could actually see the word Ziploc in the the top of this jellyfish because of the mold that we used to, to cast it in. And um, uh, I got the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, where I'm an adjunct, to um, pay for a uh, deep-sea battery and the very first tests of the system. Right. And so the very first time we got to test this was on a NOAA-funded expedition to the Gulf of Mexico. And we put it down uh, at a magnificent place called the Brine Pool, which is an underwater lake, and that's another whole story. And, uh, so how deep is it? How, how it was about 1,800 feet deep, I think. Um, and we set the, the eye in the sea down next to the edge of the Brine Pool because it was kind of like an oasis on the bottom of the ocean where I thought there might be a lot of large predators patrolling. Right. And then we had the electronic jellyfish out in front. And we left it down there uh, for overnight recording. And so for the first four hours, it was just um, rec uh, recording the animals swimming around being natural with no stimuli. Right. Uh, but then um, four hours into it, I had programmed the electronic jellyfish to come on for the very first time with that pinwheel display. And 86 seconds after we turned it on for the first time, 
we recorded a squid over six feet long that's so new to science it couldn't even be placed in any known scientific family. Wow, so that's, that's 86 seconds. 86 seconds. I, as you know, that never happens in science. But no, if, no. I, I mean, I couldn't have asked for a better proof of concept. And I went back to the National Science Foundation and said, this is what we will discover. And they gave me a half a million dollars to do it right. Cool. Imagine if it had done it in 36 seconds. Yeah, I mean, there you go. Two million dollars. <laughs> that would have been great. So, so, so just, to, just to recap, so what, what's happening is this is this burglar alarm thing, right? Yes. So, so, so this fake jellyfish is emitting these signals like, help, help, I'm under attack. Um, and, the, and this big squid that no one's ever seen before says, oh, there must be food that's attacking this, this jellyfish thing and, and looks for it. 86 seconds later, right? Yep. That's, that's, that's what's going on. Of course, it doesn't find it because there is no, right. because there is no real jellyfish. So you, you probably have a frustrated giant squid, or not giant squid, right? and big, a, big squid on your head. And actually, we, we have examples of that because doing it right involved the world's first deep-sea webcam, which we put into the Monterey Canyon for about eight months. Okay. And uh, we had a really proper electronic jellyfish set of experiments that we did. And we had bunches of squid attacks on this electronic jellyfish. And there were a number of times when it came in, and you could, I mean, I know it's anthropomorphizing, but you could just see the frustration because it would come in and then go, whoa, and stop, and then back off and try again, and then back off and try again, and then come in from a different angle. And so, yes, clearly uh, they, they were looking for something else. <laughs> Wow, so that, that's, that's certainly a sign of uh, both the, the ability to work on a shoestring and, and with undergraduates uh, and, and uh, to be successful and to do science, uh, well, what was I going to say, to, to... Doing science on a shoestring, yeah, yes. But also a real sense of being innovative. I mean, the, the danger, of course, of doing that is that people say, you see? Look, you didn't find you. Look what you did. So next time we're not going to find. This is fostering your creative juices to get going. Right. But uh, anyway, you can always be the victim of your success. But it's great that, uh, that 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 certainly worked. And so you were able to take that money and then do more with I and the C and 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 hopefully lead towards uh, make one at least incremental step towards a better understanding uh, on a, on a wider scale of, of what's actually out in the oceans. And just more proof that I think there's so much left to be discovered in the ocean that we've just barely begun to scratch beneath the surface and we have to be looking at new and innovative ways to explore if we're really going to find out what's out there. I want to move on to the one of the things that you raised before when you were talking about coastlines and, and uh, the expensive Navy program and some of your solutions to, to actually address that. But before I leave bioluminescence proper, I'd like to ask if there's anything that, that uh, from your perspective, is, is mysterious. Is there anything that you, that, that you still find curious about the process, the mechanics of bioluminescence? Is there anything that you think, gosh, if I could talk to some you know, all-knowing figure in the sky somewhere and say, this is, you know, I've always wondered about this particular aspect about bioluminescence. Is there any question in that way that you might have? Oh, there's so many of those. It's hard even to begin because an awful lot of what we think we know about bioluminescence is guesswork. And there's been very little direct observation. So, well, for example, some of the different colors of bioluminescence, why are there are these colors? And, and right. you know, this, there's some examples of ultraviolet, extending down into the ultraviolet. And then there are some shrimp that we discovered uh, working with a colleague of mine that measures the spectral sensitivity of the eyes of these animals that can see ultraviolet light. 
but their own bioluminescence isn't ultraviolet, That's as far as we know. Um, and so we've actually worked rather hard to try to figure out why this shrimp can see both blue light and ultraviolet light, what it's using that for. And that's a total mystery we haven't figured out. Right. Um, there's you know, little mysteries along the way, like there's a fish called the shining tube shoulder that squirts out light just the way other animals squirt it out to defend themselves. But for some reason, this fish doesn't just squirt out the luminescent chemicals, squirts out whole cells. Of itself. Cells uh, with nuclei and membranes, I mean, that's energetically insane. Yeah, it's total insanity. So why? You know, what, what is it that requires it in its natural history to do that that's so different from what other animals do? There's, there's endless questions and, like that. And how many people are actually working on, I mean, are you, do you have a sense that, geez, more people should be working on this? Or, 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 and has that changed very much? Or is it becoming a, a more popular, more active area of research, more widespread area of research? No, it's, it's actually become less so, yes. less so because of lack of funding. You know, marine science has been traditionally underfunded. And it's gotten much worse recently. So it's very, very hard to get cruise time, to get ship time, to get submersible time. The one bright spot on the horizon is that now there are companies developing submersibles for the um, entertainment market, as it were, you know, people that could actually afford to buy a submersible for their yacht. And so you can actually buy a very nice submersible for anywhere from $1 million to $3 million. There you which go. It's a bargain. It's a bargain, actually, compared to what a research submersible um, used to cost. Right. And uh, these are really pretty impressive um, uh, platforms. So maybe through kind of that back door, eventually we will get more access. But really, it's crazy for our government not to be funding more research into things to do with our ocean because this is the life support system of the planet. You know, this is, this is about sustaining us well into the future and to just ignore it is, is utter foolishness as evidenced by the fact that the Chinese recognize this and their, part of their trip towards world domination is based on taking over the oceans. And, you know, they've developed uh, one of the world's deepest diving submersibles. Um, they're taking over ports all around the world. They're going to be like the Phoenicians. They're going to they're going to take over through the oceans, and so we ignore the oceans at our own peril. So, I, w I wanted to ask you a couple things. But you said the funding was declining in the in the United States. So um, that's odd. I mean, I wouldn't have expected I wouldn't have expected that. Over what what period of time are we talking? Ten years? Five? So under? Oh, the past ten years, we've seen a dramatic lo uh, loss of funding for for marine science. And, it, you know, it's very expensive research. Um, you, you require ships and submersibles and crews, and, and um, it just gets more and more expensive. And, you know, fuel um, and all of these things are such that um, there have been a bunch of decisions made um, that I think a lot of us are concerned about, where there was a tremendous amount of money put into a high-end program called um, the Integrated Ocean Observing System, um, that sounds good in terms of wiring the ocean, but in fact, it's not very innovative and it's taking a huge amount of money to maintain the infrastructure of this, um, which means that they've cut back on the mid-range funding to cover that 
higher end cost. And they're wedded to this this program. This is apparently they are wedded to the program, and so now you know the the, the grants that used to be available for two hundred thousand dollars, they're saying are going to be cut back to thirty thousand dollars or something like that. And you can't do field re research with that kind of small amount of money. So it's not so much in the, from the global perspective. If I'm uh, Barack Obama, which I'm so evidently not, but but if I'm Barack Obama and I look at things and I say, well or if I'm the head of the NSF or whatever it is. Maybe the, uh, maybe the net amount of money which is actually given to marine research is roughly the same, but most of it's being eaten up by this particular, this IO, this, this integrated ocean observing system. Right. It is. Is, right. Is, that, is that a fair way to look I, at it? I think that is a fair way to, to look at it, although I think um, uh, there have been cutbacks um, in NOAA for um, some of their undersea research. Actually, I haven't looked exactly at the budgets, but there, there again, there have been some decisions made where they put a tremendous amount of money into um, one vessel um, that can only do one kind of work. Right. And, and so we've lost funding for what I think was one of their most successful programs, which was the, their ocean exploration program. And that's just been, been cut back to nothing. So you need to, you need to partner with James Cameron. To, uh, to well, we, I, I do think we're kind of heading towards the time of the Medici where, where we're going to be dependent on these wealthy people that have big yachts and interests and right. I mean that, that's the only way we're going to be able to do this research right. for the time being anyway. So I want to move on to the education and ecological aspect and how we use bioluminescence for this. But just, just before I go, I guess just from, from bioluminescence, when you talk about submersibles and, and what you had relayed before about experience. One of the things which seems somewhat different and interesting and perhaps worth emphasizing, so correct me if I'm wrong about this whole phenomenon, is that you can also, uh, you can also trigger bioluminescence by bumping into things as, as, you're, as you're going through. So there may be, I mean, you talked about your eye in the sea, but there's this whole issue of how you can actually observe things without disturbing the environment or even triggering uh, perhaps unwarranted bioluminescence. So you really have to, I think, I mean, that, that, that presents a somewhat challenging framework, I would imagine, on the, on the detection and the scientific side of things to both not normally disturb the environment, but also perhaps not, not inadvertently trigger the very phenomenon that you're actually interested in studying. Uh, that's, that's quite reasonable, because one of the things I discovered through my research was that, in fact, whereas I saw a tremendous amount of bioluminescence when I was diving in WASP, what I didn't what I wasn't able to sort out at the time was that I was on a tether, so I was moving up and down. So I had this envelope around me that I was stimulating of right. the luminescence. So it turns out if you trim out and go neutral in the water, which I was able to do with a different kind of submersible that was untethered, um, there's no luminescence. So it's a minefield. Right. And so all these animals have to deal with that minefield as well. Right. And so I'm very interested in developing um, platforms that can go neutral in the water and um, float with the current and, and really be as unobtrusive as possible. And that's perfectly possible <coughs> to do, but we just you know, haven't invested the money in doing it yet. Let me pick up where you left off some time ago about looking at the coastal environments. And you were, you, I stopped you way back when you were saying, how do we measure bioluminescence and how do we measure the, the, the footprint? And it was hugely expensive, even by Navy standards, to be able to do that. Um, and my understanding is that you started thinking more and more about how you can, in fact, measure bioluminescence, but also use bioluminescence 
for ways of measuring uh, other, other factors, other key factors within uh, coastal environment, within, in fact, the Euro Lagoon environment here. So how did you get involved in that? And, and tell me a little bit more about What's going on? So when, when these reports came out, the Pew Ocean Commission, the U.S. Commission Ocean Policy Report, they were kind of the triggers that led me to start the Ocean Research and Conservation Association, which is a 501c3 not-for-profit. Um, and our focus is on developing technological solutions to ocean conservation challenges. And so the one of the first projects um, we started up was uh, a water quality monitoring device called Kilroy. Um, that was developed by a very talented engineer named Eric Thosteson. And he designed Kilroy the way you design a cell phone, which is um, you've got multiple sensors with one power supply, one communication system. It was a way to, to package it so that it was as inexpensive and user-friendly as possible. Okay. And so we created these systems that we could put out in the water and we attached them to existing dock pilings or channel markers out here. Um, we also developed a sensor package that we can put on it that can measure bioluminescence. Um, and so we can use that to uh, look at the real-time biology of what's going on out there so we can see dinoflagellate blooms for example yeah. and we can identify them by the types of flashes that they produce and one of the cool things in this is that it can actually um, identify the luminescent animal to some extent by the type of flash it produces oh, really? yeah so uh, there's one particular type of dinoflagellate that produces paralytic shellfish poisoning and all of those produce the same type of flash and, and we can recognize it by the type of flash that it produces. Paralytic shellfish poisoning, that sounds, uh, it's that nasty. sounds dangerous. It's dangerous. That's, that's the, you know, when you're not supposed to eat oysters and, and um, clams because there's been a, a bloom of these um, red tide organisms, um, okay. that's, that's what that's about. And it's economically uh, a huge impact on the shellfish industry. Okay. And so to be able to have a monitoring capability um, to be able to see that coming right. um, could, could be very valuable. So, uh, you know, we developed these Kilroys, um, and at the time that I started ORCA, we had kind of a three-legged stool of funding from um, federal, state, and private. And we ended up um, losing the state funding because the state of Florida went bankrupt. And the federal has been gradually drying up in general for anything to do with conservation. And so we were dependent on private. And we had a, a wonderful family foundation that was supporting us, um, the Clineal Foundation. And um, uh, when I made a presentation to their board about the Kilroys and the progress we'd made, one of the members of their board asked me, well, how do you know where to put the Kilroys? And I really didn't have an answer for him. I mean, I, I said something about, well, you know, you look at the water flow patterns. But right. the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, that is a really good question because you want to be smart about this. Sure. And so what you'd really like to know is where the pollution has been accumulating in the sediments as an indication of where you want to be mapping your flow patterns from. Right. And so I thought, well, okay, sediment sampling is easy enough, but the problem is that it's very expensive. If you don't know what the toxicant is that you're looking for, you have to be testing for all sorts you of test things. for all this stuff. It takes a really long time. It's really expensive. And so I figured, okay, well, what we want is the equivalent of a canary in the coal mine. And coal miners used to take canaries down with them into the mines before they had detectors for the poisonous gases they had to worry about because they knew if they saw the canary keel over or stop singing or whatever that it was dangerous and they needed to get out of there. And so that's what's called a broad-spectrum 
bioassay, broad spectrum, meaning that there's a whole range of things it's sensitive to. But something's wrong. And it's a living assay. Right. And so um, I kind of did a survey of different types of assays, and there was one using bioluminescent bacteria, which obviously attracted my attention because sure. I have that interest. I didn't invent it. It's, it's called Microtox. It's been around for years for um, testing uh, food safety issues. Okay. And it's been used a little bit in Europe for sediment testing, but it's never really been standardized. And so um, we had a scientist here, Dr. Beth Falls, who, who um, standardized that assay and made it very, very dependable for us to be able to measure sediments. And so what we do is we actually use this as a trick to be able to make pollution visible. We go out, we take our sediment samples, right. and then we code them. Red is toxic, blue is non-toxic, and we produce a gradient. And so it ends up looking just like a, pollution, uh, a weather map. Um, where red is hot and blue is cold, but we create pollution maps where red is toxic and blue is non-toxic. So, 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 the, so the assay consists of this. I, I collect a bunch of soil. Um, I somehow combine this with this bioluminescent bacteria. This is the sign yep, I'm, I'm no. supposing. So tell, me, tell me where I'm, where I'm wrong. And then if everything is fine, bioluminescent bacteria just keeps doing its thing. It, it's emitting light at the same frequency that it right. would have emitted before. And, but if it's in trouble, if it's this canary which is about to keel over, it, it keels over. And presumably the rate at which it's keeling over, the rate at which you're detecting the light uh, disappearing. Or how much of the sediment. And it, it's, it's sediment. It's stuff off the bottom of the ocean. It's, right. It, um, that, uh, how much of it it took to make the light right. diminish to this amount. So, so the intensity or the, the, the concentration of, of the yeah. toxicity and all the rest of this. It's stuff. called the EC50, the effective concentration at 50% to get 50% of the light. Okay. And so if it takes a tiny amount to do that, then it's really, really toxic. Sure, sure. So you can, you can quantify exactly, uh, or at least reasonably, that there's some uh, nasty stuff. Right. That's, right. that's there. So you and can quantify the nastiness using this bioluminescent bacteria. And then the theory is, you know, now that you've got your map, and you've, you've, you, sometimes it may be very obvious where the pollution's coming from because there's a bright red spot right in front of right. a boatyard or something that, right. that's been dumping uh, heavy metals. Um, but uh, sometimes it's not so clear where the pollution's coming from, and then we put the Kilroys out and track the flow patterns and start to be able to figure out where the pollution is coming from. So I've made good progress with this, very good progress, um, but it's been extremely difficult to get the, this funded um, as we go forward because of the lack of um, state and federal support for water quality monitoring. That was our original business model was that we were going to use state and federally mandated water quality monitoring programs as our funding stream. They're gone. And I, it's, it's kind of amazing because most of the public is completely unaware that sure. nobody is minding the store. Nobody is monitoring this. And, and, you know, we've got a situation right out here with, uh, in the last year and a half, we've had uh, just a catastrophic loss of seagrass beds. Seagrass are like rainforest, and they're like the third most biologically diverse ecosystem on the planet, coral reefs, rainforests, and um, sea meadows. Right. And, and these seagrass beds are absolutely essential for life in these estuaries. They support the, you know, their hiding places. It's all about hide and seek again. Yeah. It's hiding places for the baby fish. And even offshore fish come in to breed in these um, estuaries because of these hiding places in the mangroves and the seagrass. And so we've lost 36,000 acres 
acres of I, seagrass. I, I know what that means. There's a per, like percentage of for, for, it's, for the region. It's, what, what it's about doing? half of the 156 mile long um, Indian River Lagoon. Holy smokes! And, and, and how long? Like roughly? It was a year and a half that that, that it, it disappeared. So what's what's going on? Well, that's an interesting question because it's been controversial. There was an, a microalgae bloom that was initially attributed to it because um, that blocks out the sunlight. But whether it lasted long enough to really kill these as thoroughly as it has, because the rhizomes, the, the roots of the seagrass are gone. But that bloom did not extend down as far as the die-off did. Okay, so so that's, never, that it doesn't explain. It doesn't seem to coincide. Right. So we have started a program recently um, working with school kids. And um, this harkens back to a situation that as I've become more and more of a conservationist, as I've started to take the 30,000-foot view, I've started to realize that, that the thing that I think is more unconscionable than destroying these ecosystems as we have is handing ecosystems that are spiraling onto, out of control to the next generation without giving them the tools to deal with that situation. I, I just think that that unconscionable. It, it's unconscionable. So, you know, we talk about uh, climate change. I mean, when I was born, there were two and a half billion people on the planet. There's seven billion now. That's just mind-boggling. All those people are using resources and creating waste and burning fossil fuels, and and we are creating a chemical Armageddon as a consequence. You know, the fact that we could actually be acidifying our oceans is mind-boggling, and the toxins that are pouring into our waterways and poisoning ourselves as well, as well as all of these ecosystems. And how are these kids supposed to deal with this? But, I mean, it's on many, many different levels that this is a problem because all your conservationists do is, is just preach doom and gloom. And it's been said on numbers of occasions that Martin Luther King Jr. did not mobilize the civil rights movement by preaching, I have a nightmare. But that's what the conservation movement is trying to do. Right. You so, were pretty good just a few minutes ago, by the way. Of, uh, I know. It's scaring, it, scaring me. So, it's, it's, but it's, under, it's understandable that you're passionate. You should be passionate. But how do, you, how do you go forward? It's horrific. So I think that the first thing we have to do with these kids is actually teach them optimism. And the way you do that is realistically, because optimism in and of itself is not a solution. Sure. But they have to know that they are problem solvers. And I think that this all harkens back to the way we teach science in our schools, which is very badly, very badly. There's a famous um, essay by a woman named Alison Gopnik, who wrote this in the New York Book Review quite a few years ago, um, where she said, what if we taught baseball the way we teach science? If we taught baseball the way we teach science, then kids wouldn't actually get to play baseball. They'd learn the rules of baseball. And when they got to college, they might get to reenact certain famous baseball games. But it wouldn't be until they got to graduate school that they'd actually get game. to play a game. <laughs> What kind of baseball players would they be? Well, that's how we teach science. And, and I mean, we actually teach science by having kids watch a candle burn and write down their observations. Now, I know a really gifted teacher might be able to make that work, but honestly, that's about as exciting as watching paint dry. And so I feel like, you know, we've got kids at an age when they want to make a difference in the world. They're passionate. Let's harness that for real change in the world right. and get them involved in making it, doing these measurements that nobody else is doing, you know, solving problems that nobody else is solving, learning how to solve problems. So we started a program that we call Save the Water Babies. 
and this um, comes back to the number of times that I have had some fresh young face sitting across my desk telling me that they want to be, grow up to be a marine biologist and when I ask why they say because they love dolphins and they want to swim with the dolphins and I say well look if you really love dolphins the most important thing you can do for a dolphin right now is clean up its water and I have pictures of dolphins in the southern part of the Indian River Lagoon here that are covered with this flesh-eating fungal infection that is just horrific and if you know anything about dolphins you know they have just exquisitely sensitive skin and they must be in agony and and so if you want to make a difference let's let's talk about, about the dolphins and the fact that the number of baby dolphins that are dying because of the toxins in the water because the mother passes on her toxin load to her firstborn um, through her milk and through her blood and so that's what we call it save the water babies we can use lots of pictures of cute baby dolphins and and you know kids get it sure. they get it and so we have um, through a wonderful um, grant that we got from a very interesting organization called Impact 100 which is a bunch of women getting together and deciding they want to make an impact in their local community by each giving a thousand dollars to create a hundred thousand dollar grant that can be given to one organization to have a true impact it's a pretty interesting idea and right. it's actually spread nationwide um, I think it started in Ohio but anyways we were recipient of an Impact 100 grant from um, Indian River uh, Bureau Beach up north here and so we are using it um, to work with Indian River Charter High School students to have them create a pollution map and so they've gone out and created a pollution map um, in the northern part of the Bureau Beach where we've lost most of this seagrass and uh, we haven't reported this yet because we've just started to get the data back but the toxicity in the sediment is the highest we've ever seen anywhere and it's not what I was expecting because that's that's not an industrial area I, I don't even know at this point why it's so toxic but these kids are incredibly motivated now they sure. they're, they're connecting the dots they understand and so for the first semester they are collecting the data and creating the pollution map and then for the second semester based on what we discover they are going to develop messaging for the community and to try to develop public service announcements and whatever other ways they can think of that can make a difference so when we had a bunch of kids applying for this class and we couldn't take them all we tried to get a balance that wasn't just based on academics but we wanted kids that were good at art as well as at science because we wanted to create uh, as diverse a group as we could to make it as powerful a team as we right, could to right. try to address these problems and show these kids that they can make a difference. Well, I think, I think there are two things as you're talking that, that come to my mind that are, that are really truly innovative. I mean, the first one is to just picking up on this Alison Dopnik idea that you were saying. You were, you were getting people uh, at the high school level to engage in real science. Um, not just hear about it, not just talk about it, not just do it as an experiment because they're told to do it when we all know what we should find and so forth and so on. They're really engaged in the process of doing scientific research. So that's point number one. Point number two is that they're not just doing scientific research so that they can say I'm doing something new and frontline and writing it up. And they're doing something which is of direct benefit to all of us. They're, you're actually getting them to help. So well, you're not getting them, you are, you are allowing them to, to do something which is of direct benefit to, to everybody. And, and not only is that obviously a, a proper utilization of resources to, to be to use, I, I suppose, economics talk, but it also, of course, helps them take ownership. I mean, if they see a map like this, they realize, oh my gosh, look at this! This work that I did shows this. 
we have to let people know about this. We have to go forwards. It's not as if you're telling them, okay, kids, now you have to go out because we have a problem. They've seen the problem. They were instrumental in allowing us to see the, in allowing everyone to see the problem. And so um, uh, this, this seems like, in a, in a way, such an obvious thing to be doing. I mean, you, you, if you look at high school students as a potential resource to be able to do science. If you look at them, we're all in this together. Rather than, well, you little high school students, you know, one day you'll be able to help contribute to society. But you look at these passionate individuals, uh, or these potentially passionate individuals as a, resort, uh, as a resource to help us all, because we're all in this big mess together. Them most of all, as you pointed out, because they're going to inherit this, uh, this stuff. Um, then, then it seems completely reasonable and logical to get them not just to be learning about science, but doing something that can really contribute towards, towards our understanding, our deeper understanding, develop baselines to, to do more research and so forth. So as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, can we scale this? How can we make this bigger than the Indian River Lagoon? However, I mean, that's obviously of enormous uh, import to people who live here. But this is something that we should be able to do on a regional level, on a national level, on an international level. There are high school students all over the world that I'm sure, who I'm sure would be interested. Is there a way we can, we can scale your particular program? And, and are there other programs that we can somehow manage to put within this rubric? Because it seems like such an important and, uh, idea. I think, I think it, it can be made scalable. I, that's been a, a focus of mine um, from quite recently is, is how can we make it scalable? I'm not sure that we can do it with the microtox assay itself because that requires some fairly expensive equipment um, and probably more expertise than your average high school group is going to be able to put to bear. So we're trying to develop some um, simpler, lower cost assays and my ultimate goal is to actually make these available on the web as open source material. Sure. Right. and then have other people feed into it and, right. and there are these um, citizen science groups where kids take on civic responsibility issues and so that comes back to your question of you know how can we leverage I mean there, there are other groups that could come into this from right. all different angles you could have you know media, media groups right. um, and just if we, you know, if we put it out there so that these kids can do this themselves then absolutely, I think it, it could be scalable. The trick right now is for me to find a bioassay right. that is simple enough and dependable enough. And robust enough. And robust enough right. that, that this is going to work. And so we, we have some, some research we have to do before we're going to be quite there. But, but we're, we've actually been making some progress on it. It's been a very hard slog, but I do feel like we've started to get some momentum lately. Um, we're starting to get recognized and... Um, these pollution maps really make people sit up and take notice. Sure. Well, they see something concrete, and they see something you know detailed, scientific, and concrete. Right. And so uh, I'm actually more optimistic than I've been for quite some time about this because I've been struggling for a really, really long time to try to get a foothold and you know get these these concepts across. But I really think if we can harness the energy of the youth to solve real-world problems, that that may be the tipping point for right. a whole lot of different things. Right. So from the very difficult to the perhaps even more difficult, we've talked a little bit about the education and ecological issues and, and the, the unfortunately spectacularly poor situation, at least locally, we seem to find ourselves. And presumably there are 
what's happening in the Indian River Lagoon is unfortunately not so unique as is happening in lots of other places, one would imagine. Um, and now let's look to the oceans in general, uh, which is also something very near and dear to your heart. As you mentioned, you didn't start off as, as, an, as necessarily an environmentalist. You started off as somebody who was excited about marine biology. You were excited. You, you, your PhD was in, in neurobiology. Neurobiology. Yeah. So you've <laughs> interesting, interesting evolution. Um, but there, you mentioned earlier about how we only know 5% of what's in the world's oceans. And, and how on earth can you even begin to consider how best to protect something if you don't even know what it is that you're protecting? Yeah, and actually, uh, I should have pointed out that the year that the U.S. Commission on Ocean Policy Report came out was the year that we discovered that, that squid that nobody had ever seen before. And I, I just brought home the message that we're destroying the ocean before we even know what's in it. I, I also think that that's what directed me more towards this Save the Water Babies program because we don't have a populace that is, uh, has a high enough understanding of the basics of ecology and ecological systems and how they support our existence on the planet. And, and I think the complexity of those things has deterred students from learning about them early on and certainly not later on as adults. And right. so to get them actually out there in their local ecosystems making a difference for their local communities I think could end up, you know, with a much more educated populace that can better understand what ought to be a simple concept that if you have a marine reserve and protect, uh, you have a no fishing zone that covers, you know, 10% of your coastline, you're actually going to have 50% um, more fish that are, that are possible to catch. But, you know, short-term greed overtakes, um, you know, long-term gain again and again and again and we just have to have people that understand those basic principles that can be fighting for them and have been out there and seen for themselves what a difference you know small changes can actually make because our individual choices and in, you know what we eat what we put on our lawns you know how we, what kind of cars we drive all of these things are impacting our life support systems do you see reasons for optimism do you see you mentioned fishing. Do you see groups that you might not normally associate with uh, ocean ecological movements, environmental movements, protection? Uh, uh, do you see association of fishermen who are who are now becoming increasingly more environmentally conscious? Do you do you, do you get a sense that from you do a lot of talks, you travel around an awful lot, you have discussions with people of all different. Uh, uh, orientations and persuasions, and you do a lot of work locally, regionally, and nationally. Do you, is there is there reason for optimism in terms of our understanding and perspective? I think I think there's a lot of reason for optimism. For one thing, we have more knowledge at our fingertips than ever before in human history. The other thing is that I think a lot of people um, lose track of of one of the real points of greatness of of this country in particular, which is that um, we are still a young country and we think like a young country which means we can actually turn on a dime and we've done it again and again and the best example of that is the stop smoking campaign now I know for some people it seemed like it went on for a long time but eventually truth won out and as far as the rest of the world is concerned the US stopped on a dime literally I mean you know smoking is just not acceptable I, I, by, by and large, right. and it was in an, 
incredibly short period of time for something that was such a cultural centerpiece of, of every place that you went to now have it be so vilified because of health. People get it. Right. And, and, so, and it was largely the youth that, that turned that around. You know, when, when the tobacco companies were, were um, fighting some of the public service announcements, the ones they went after the strongest were the ones that were being produced by young people because they were too effective. They were fine with the ones that the Cancer Institute were produ producing, but they, the ones that the young people were putting out for other young people, were too persuasive. they were too persuasive, and so they started to try to find reasons why. And, and so I think young people can make a huge difference, and I think they are our real hope for optimism. So let me conclude by asking you this one key question. I know you've just had an election in this country. If you had been running, had you been running, and had you won, and, and I, I would now be talking to the new president of the United States, what would you do differently? Oh, it would all be about education. I mean, I, you know, I would just focus so hard on education and the difference that it, it, that's the economic engine of this country. Right. And, and education about the environment and, and all of that, you know, hopefully leading to more funding for conservation efforts. All of those things would just fall in line if we could just, you know, put our focus on what has been the strength of the country for, for so long. And, and unfortunately, no longer is one of our core strengths. And, and innovative education, the most Nobel Prizes in the world have been uh, awarded to U.S. scientists. And, and that was a, our basic innovative thinking. That's still there. Let's not lose it. Let's tap into it and, and put our resources into as much innovation as we possibly can to work together to solve all these problems. Well, it's been a very educational experience for me, um, and listening to you passionately and eloquently describe your views. Thank you very much for allowing me into, uh, into Orca, into your home, by the sea, as it were. And, Absolutely. Uh, best, best of luck. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About the Environment, along with separate discussions with Joanna Haig, Andy Hoffman, and Charles Shepard. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.